You're listening to 3CR Radio. And Island Life, Grace Jones there, do or die. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are queer activist Brent Allen Kidd and Neil Farrow joins us. 3CR. Well, Brent Allen Kidd is a queer activist originally from Canada and I chatted with Brent this week from his home in rural Victoria. Brent, welcome to the program. Delighted to be here, James. Tell us about your journey uh, during COVID, during lockdown in rural Victoria. 
Well, I mean, as everyone knows, the uh, restrictions have lifted somewhat for regional Victoria. And um, but I have to say, I've been working as a consultant for a while now, a couple of years from home. Um, in some ways, COVID has been not as difficult for me because I now have my wonderful partner here with me all the time. So I'm not working alone anymore, although we're in different parts of the house. So whereabouts in rural Victoria are you? I know you've got a fantastic place called Buggery Acres. <laughs> yeah, it is It is uh, an amazing off-grid property about an hour and a half north of the city, just around Malmesbury. Um, it's uh, 10 acres, uh, mud brick house, we have a big dam and it's just a beautiful place to go. And I, I should tell your listeners that even though it is called Buggery Acres, please don't ask me why, because I have no idea. It just happened. It's been that way for some time. And it's certainly not the sex den that I think lots of people think it is. It sounds like an incredibly joyous place for you. And it looks joyous as well. Some of the photographs you've published online are, are superb. There's one of you in a caftan looking like you're having an amazing time. Well, you know, uh, caftans are my preferred outfit. Usually I like to accompany them with a large amount of costume jewelry and bare feet. Um, but um, also, it was the signature style for my late, my uh, 50th birthday. So everyone wore caftans during my birthday here at Buggery Acres. So tell us how you found resilience during COVID. Uh, you know, I think... Uh, what I've missed a lot is that human connection. But I'd have to say for me as a consultant, that's been the case before COVID. Um, I think it has also highlighted um, what's necessary to stay alert, focused, concentrating on what you're doing. And I think what we've learned, not, and it's not just me, it's people I'm talking to, is resilience comes from strength. But it also comes from being relaxed and being mindful and being gracious and adding gratitude in the small things that are important because we're not seeing them as clearly as we used to. Absolutely. So tell us about the community issues that are currently dear to your heart. I know you've got a strong background in activism. Well, at the moment, I have to say I am super delighted about the fact that I'm now working for VMEC, which is the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council. Um, they've asked me to work with them for the next nine months, designing a framework around consumer-led and focused research and evaluation. Um, this comes on um, out of the recent Royal Commission in Victoria into Mental Health Care Services, um, and I am just over the moon thrilled with the notion that we can look at people living with mental health conditions and say, you know what, we're not just patients. And in fact, we're not just consumers, we're researchers, we are analysts, and we're all those things, and we can come together with our lived experience and change the way that research is being done. So you're finding the, uh, the Royal Commission into Mental Health an empowering time for the community. Well, I think in, in, for this piece of work, absolutely. I To have a Royal Commission that we hope is going to be saying, you know, uh, it's not just service delivery where consumers need to be involved and those with the lived experience. It's also research. It's policy design. It's evaluation. Um, it's And it's, I think, 
often when you look at reviews uh, such as this, it very much focuses on the service delivery end, right? Like we want better services for people living with, with uh, mental health. But in this case, what we're saying is, you know, services are often predicated on evidence and evidence comes from research. And that's where we need to be involved as well. And, you know, as someone living with a mental health uh, condition, it just feels so empowering to know that the political masters that be are willing and wanting us to be engaged in that level. Of course, the Royal Commission has highlighted some incredibly uh, traumatic issues for a lot of people. Uh, what do you make of some of the issues about, about the failures in the system that have been emerging? Well, I mean, I think compulsory treatment is is a blatant, blatant disregard of basic human rights. I think uh, forcing people to undergo treatment is appalling in every way, shape and form. Uh, I liken it to conversion therapy. Uh, being forced upon people who are gay and lesbian. I think it's just disgusting. I think um, the notion of what happens to people sometimes when they are hospitalized and the seclusion that people are forced to undergo and separation uh, from other people is, again, something blatantly disregarded and has to change. And I so hope that what we're doing with this Royal Commission is changing those two aspects in particular that are really close to my heart. So there needs to be some big law reforms to the system and how it's regulated for this Royal Commission to be truly effective. Absolutely. You know, um, as I was saying earlier around evidence, but law has to change as well. And in that policy, you know, and then, you know, it means we need the brave politicians to enact that around legislation, legislative reform and regulatory minded. So I just think, you know, uh, finally, our voice being heard um, in the mental health care sector is so important. It reminds me of the early days in HIV when we struggled um, for anyone to listen to us as people living with HIV. Uh, we were just disregarded. We were the patient. We were the object of care, not the active, active actor in care. So people with mental health issues are really fighting against the medicalization of the of the system, just like people with HIV did when that medical model was found to be repressive at times. Absolutely, absolutely. And we know, and it doesn't, it's not just in HIV, we know across the board. Same with breast cancer, for example. You know, getting people who are have the lived experience changes the dynamic, radically changing the dynamic. I just finished doing this really great research program, uh, 25 countries around the world, um, looking at quality of life of people living with HIV. And, you know, it's so interesting. In Australia, the notion of nothing about us without us is so fundamental to our identity as people living with HIV um, that, you know, the engagement we have with healthcare providers as people living with HIV is really the best in the world. And this study um, uh, called Positive Perspectives 2 demonstrates that. I think that's because Australia was leading the way early on in the response to HIV around involving people living with HIV. I hope and I pray that the same can happen with people living with a mental health condition. What can you tell us about your journey with mental health and your journey with being a person living with HIV and how the two issues have intersected? Oh, I think for me, the first thing that comes out to my mind is as a person living with HIV, uh, having to go through the immigration process to come here to live with my partner, who have now been together for 22 years as of Friday. Um, but uh, we fought 
long and hard for me to be able to reside with my partner in Australia. Uh, it caused, I think in many ways, it ended up exacerbating an already existing mental health condition. Um, I would, you know, I can disclose on your program that, you know, I think I suffered uh, post-traumatic stress because of that thing. And in a small case in point of that, um, these were the days when, you know, things came to your post box and the red slip that says you have registered mail to come and pick up. If that was in my post box, and this was when Paul and I were, you know, baby boyfriends, um, honestly, I would have a panic attack. I would be so scared to go to the post office because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Was I going to be issued the 28 days to leave the country? Because I had that. I had that actually issued to me three times. And we fought long and hard all the way to tribunal, the um, immigration tribunal, for me to stay and be with my partner. And, um, you know, that sort of fight, I think, was unnecessary, uh, uncalled for. Uh, it isn't something, and it currently isn't something they would do to other people living with other health conditions. But at the time, that's what they did to people with HIV, and they continue to do it to people with HIV. Um, that kind of stress, that kind of um, destruction of your identity and your dis causes such profound confusion that your basic tenet of things like what is safe, where is my space, is so profoundly compromised that you don't feel human anymore. How did you win the case after, after all those tribunal hearings? What was the turning point? Well, the turning point ended up being that the government had decided I was unfit uh, to live in Australia. Uh, but the case then pivoted on the fact that the government could not uh, force Paul to have to leave the country. That was unjust and unjustified. So in the end, the case was not about me, but about what it would do to Paul, to Paul's family, and to his sense of safety and security. Um, shocking, incredibly shocking, that, that it actually ended up having to be my residency and uh, now my citizenship as an Australian pivoted on what it would do to an existing Australian. I, I, uh, shocking, and I believe uh, blatant disregard for someone's human dignity. Has Australia's immigration regime now changed to be more friendly towards people living with HIV, or do the same barriers still exist, the same incredible uh, impediments that you faced? Uh, they still exist. You, in the end, become uh, the, what is it's called the cost burden to Australian society. And if you can't cross the threshold, so if it's deemed you're too costly, then you're rejected. So who gets rejected now? Uh, people from non-English speaking backgrounds, uh, people without means. So if you're in a lower socioeconomic bracket, all of these people can't meet the threshold. The only ones who seem to be able to meet the threshold, if you are an HIV positive person, would be, you know, high-end lawyers and doctors and, and politicians. Um, even if you, say, are here trying to get here on a talent visa, which means you're exceptional in, say, sports or the arts, um, you still will be denied. It is uh, an appalling state of affairs in Australia, and Australia is not the only country, but uh, we certainly aren't at the forefront when it comes to immigration policy in the same way we are around healthcare reform and the involvement of positive people in that regard. So this is yet another example of the racism of Australia's immigration policy. Absolutely. You would not, having gone through the process, if you didn't speak English, 
oh, I can't believe how difficult it would be. There is no provision for translation. There would be, there's no provision for interpretation. Uh, it is, uh, it, look, the immigration and the fence that the immigration department continues to build around Australia is no, no less destructive than Trump's wall against Mexico. Wow. And I guess, you know, when, when you hear about Australia's incredibly horrible treatment towards refugees and asylum seekers, that must dig up a lot of issues for you. It must dig up a lot of the post-traumatic stress that you were talking about before. Absolutely. I find it difficult. I mean, I engage with it, obviously, as a highly politicized individual, I engage in the issue, but I, it does, it triggers me in, in ways. And I, uh, I find it actually probably more triggering than uh, losing someone to HIV, which hardly happens much anymore. Uh, but uh, yeah, watching what happens, you know, seeing refugees and migrants in, you know, quarantined in hotels with, you know, you know, the conditions are going to be shocking. You know, Christmas Island, oh God, that just tore my heart apart. You know, and I currently have a friend who's trying to, uh, to get to be with his partner here. Um, not, they're not HIV positive. Um, but the country won't let him in because he happened to go just before COVID to his mom's 60th uh, birthday in Colombia. And then COVID happened and they shut the borders and they won't let him back in. It's appalling. I mean, this, the xenophobia sometimes in this country drives me bananas. I mean, I love being here with my partner and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But man, the xenophobia is crazy. Like it is crazy. Absolutely. And of course, you come from a country, Canada, that has such a great immigration regime. Uh, how do the two compare? Uh, look, it's, it's, honestly, I think it's night and day. You know, um, one of the things I was, I've been doing some work recently in Canada, um, not before COVID, and uh, a friend of mine there is starting up what's called the Rainbow Railroad. Um, and that's looking at getting uh, gays and lesbians uh, in countries where they're persecuted and, and criminalized um, underground, shifting them safely to Canada um, based on the notion of the, the Underground Railroad that used to work uh, to get uh, people of color out of the United States and into Canada. Uh, this is called the Rainbow Railroad. And I just think to myself, wow, it's amazing, right? And so they're settling all these, you know, Chechen refugees, gay and lesbians uh, in Canada and the prairies and, you know, they're, you know, from Uganda and everything. Um, and then I think to myself, there is no way the immigration department in Australia would support something like a rainbow railroad. They just wouldn't. And there's so many countries that, you know, where, where people are persecuted and we're kind of, you know, a bit of a kind of, you know, a, a la-la land here, aren't we, when it comes to those issues? Absolutely. I would, I mean, I know your, your guest is going to be Neil and Neil Farrow. And I think, you know, talk to him about it. Why aren't we operating a rainbow railroad for gays and lesbians who are being killed around the world? You know, Canada's doing it. New Zealand does it. Why aren't we doing it? Brent Allen Kidd, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's been awesome getting your insights. A pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I wish all your listeners well during this period of COVID. 
And that was Canadian musician Peaches with Love It Hits. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Neil Farrow is a queer activist and former state political candidate. And Neil begins that interview by defining corporate astroturfing and why it's so alarming. So astroturfing is a really interesting term, and I've recently wrote about this uh, in an article for Pro Bono Australia. Astroturfing, we're seeing more and more where corporates or big business is actually creating or funding organisations to make them look like they're community controlled or to make them look like they're community owned and supporting a community project. And and the specific example that I've given recently is um, a very, very organised campaign against the local environment organisation in northwestern WA. And you look at it from the outside and you're like, wow, this is really organised. And you peel back the layers and it's actually a whole heap of corporate organisations that are bankrolling this, but making it look like it's a community controlled campaign. That sounds incredibly alarming, especially for marginalised communities such as the LGBTIQ community. It's amazing this didn't happen during the marriage equality campaign. Yeah, I'm, I haven't seen it happen yet to the LGBTI community, but I am um, being particularly attentive to this where, you know, you've got corporate interests or business or industry associations at play and they're trying to pretend that they're representing broader community interests. We've seen it quite a bit in the environmental space, but I think it's, it's a worrying trend, particularly if it does spread into other communities like the LGBTIQ plus community. And of course, these are dressed up as bona fide community organisations. That's especially alarming. What are some of the telltale signs that people should be wary of? So a couple of things that we've noticed in the environmental space is organisations that um, have seemed to have appeared from nowhere. So they don't necessarily have the history or legacy. They're a bit opaque around who's behind them. They seem to have some very polished activities. So, you know, they have a website and messaging documents. Um, They may or may have staff employed by them, but they just don't have the history. So, a telltale sign is looking for the history of the organisations. Another thing we're starting to see is large numbers of people who wouldn't traditionally be involved in community or stakeholder activities actually rocking up at events um, or rocking up at community forums or local council meetings and, and sort of saying the same thing effectively. So the example I referred to in in Northwest WA was there were 300 people that rocked up at a council meeting. Now, this was like 2 or 3% of the entire population of the town, and they all said the same thing against an environmental organisation, and and it looked a little bit too scripted. So the first thing I'd say is look for sort of new organisations, look for ones that are a little bit opaque, and and look for people who haven't previously been enacted active in in sort of civil society and and the civil service um, and in the community and and all of a sudden large groups of them becoming very active over one or two very specific causes. And I think they're the three big telltale signs that you might be involved or advocating or working with or against an organisation that's involved in astroturfing. To what extent are political parties like the Liberal and National Parties joining forces with industry organisations such as mining companies? to collaborate on these uh, these astroturfing projects? Look, it's a little bit hard to say what the role of government is in this space and, and how connected they are uh, from a political environment. As I said, I keep going back to this example in Northwest WA because I'm, I'm been following it quite attentively. And it's interesting that the action at this local council meeting was actually um, for the councillors to move a motion to write to people like the Prime Minister and to write to people like the Treasurer. So you could only assume that there'd be sort of some back-channel conversations preparing those specific political stakeholders to get these letters. Um, But it's 
it's still a bit inconclusive as to sort of how deep the connections go uh, from a political or from a government perspective. Um, but it's it's a it's a worrying trend. I think it's originated like a lot of these things from the US, and we've seen a lot of it happening with US coalitions and consortiums, and it's just starting to feed into Australia at the moment. And of course, I imagine too that you know you've got some overlap between industry organisations and political parties where people move between the two, and of course lobbyists as well. This sounds like a a kind of you know a field day for for lobbyists, industry lobbyists. Well, lobbying's become a multi-billion-dollar industry in Australia. Um, the the proliferation of lobbying firms and and pay for access in that space. You know, one of the things that's most important that I think we should all get in the habit of doing is actually having a look at the organisations and companies we're involved in and seeing if they are on the lobbyist register for good or for bad, and also seeing what other organisations are are employing lobbyists to help them um, get access or, or get access to networks in these sort of areas. And it's definitely a wake-up call for civil society. And the social purpose or not-for-profit space to to really ramp up their advocacy because we're seeing big spending under COVID, and um, we obviously want that to go to good social um, and public outcomes. Um, and so we've really got to be in the room in that space to make sure that it's not just industry associations dictating where those billions of dollars of stimulus funding is going. How effective do you think it is for community groups to call out groups that are actually doing this kind of conduct, or will they just simply deny it? Look, I think it's it will become easier for community groups to call out astroturfing if they're aware that it's happening. It becomes more challenging for community groups to target sort of the lobbying and the more political side of the work um, unless they themselves become much more effective at how they engage with government and political stakeholders. So, you know, astroturfing um, with a bit of research uh, is something that you might be able to call out, but it's really a, a wake-up call for social purpose and community organisations to be really much more attentive as to how they engage with government and how they advocate for their agenda as well, because that's really the only um, cure, if you wanted a, a term for it, is for the social sector to step up and make sure their advocacy is as good as these industry associations and the private sector. Speaking of the social sector and advocacy, you're involved in Give Out Day. Can you tell us about that? So Give Out Day is a really exciting project. This is the second year that it's been running in Australia, but Give Out Day tries to raise funds for the vast diversity of LGBTI organisations in Australia. So there's over 40 organisations that are already signed up across all states and territories in Australia. And what happens is on Friday, the 16th of October, we run a series of virtual and online events and we try to raise money for all of those different LGBTI organisations. So we have a match funding pool available. So I think there's over 25 thousand dollars of match funding so organizations that raise money on the day will get donations given to them matched or, or doubled effectively um, but it's a really great opportunity to profile a number of organizations who perhaps have been restricted because of COVID in their fundraising activities or their sausage sizzle or the community events and really help them out for the year ahead so last year we raised over uh, $90,000 on give out day um, and this year we're aiming to beat that again and we've got some great pledges from you know trust and foundations like the Reichstein Foundation and the Sydney Meyer Fund. So it's a really good opportunity for LGBTI organisations to raise money, to raise their profile, um, to get involved and for the LGBTI community to, do to donate, knowing that for every dollar you give, it's doubled or matched effectively by some of our corporate partners. So Give Out's a really exciting project um, to keep the date free on, on Friday the 16th of October and uh, have a look online at giveoutday.com org.au or giveout.org.au and, and, and start to update with the details because we also have some really exciting things like a virtual crowdsourcing event happening on the 15th of October and uh, a whole heap of other things in and around that week. 
To what extent are you finding that uh, the corporate sector actually has LGBTIQ exhaustion or fatigue following the marriage equality campaign? Look, I think there's a little bit of exhaustion, but it's always a challenge to sort of differentiate that from the challenges that organisations and, and corporates are facing in relation to COVID as well. So, you know, um, there's a little bit less money around and corporates uh, have been a little bit more limited this year, but then we've seen new partnerships develop um, on the positive side of that. So we are seeing some organisations start to to re-engage or engage differently. And um, as I said, we've got commitments from tr some trusts and foundations as well. So I think there's an evolution of this. And, and I just encourage those out there to, you know, reach out to their corporate networks and, and promote some of the smaller LGBTI organisations who perhaps don't get the funding or the profile that many co corporates tend to support, um, as they're definitely in need, um, not just in COVID years, but, but going forward. Of course, we are finding that marginalised groups such as the LGBTIQ community are doing it tough during COVID. What are some of the particular community issues you're concerned about for our community? So I think there's um, a number of, of, of that, a number of elements of our community that are being particularly impacted in COVID. Um, I think some of the social anxiety and, and social disconnection, you know, I, I currently live in Melbourne and, and I miss my friends and I miss my family and our support networks and, and often for the LGBTI community, um, our family becomes our friends and sort of being restricted and limited for long periods of time away from our family whether it's um, genetic or, or, or by choice, um, does present sort of challenges around mental health um, uh, and general wellbeing and things like that. I think there's some interesting research, and, and we've published this on the Give Out Day website and our social media that's come out from the Victorian government as to the increased strain that COVID is placing on particularly marginalised communities, um, not just in mental health, but in everything from homelessness to job security to income inequality and things like that. And, and we often see particular elements of the community is adversely disadvantaged whenever we have things like an economic recession or a downturn. So, you know, for those who are still in a job and who are really fortunate that they have that, we'd encourage them to sort of give deep and dig deep for Give Out Day because there's a, a large number of our community um, that's not as fortunate, unfortunately. What's your response to the demonisation of Dan Andrews and the Victorian government that's happening in certain sections of the media in relation to COVID restrictions? Look, I think um, my biggest concern is that there's a polarisation happening and, and there's some, you know, there's, there are people who have some concerns and legitimate questions in between. And I think, um, you know, it, it's too easy and, and too simple simple to go, you know, you're either with him or against him. And, and I think a bit more nuance in that space is, is probably worthwhile. Um, so, you know, considering the complications and the issues. And, and then the other side of it is looking beyond COVID. You know, what we're going through all COVID will have complications for a large number of communities going forward. So how can we as a community accept where we are now, but trying to start to step up as to what the challenges we'll be facing in the future will be? So, you know, recessions cause obviously issues around um, homelessness, around job security, around income, access to food, um, resources. How do we prevent those things from adversely impacting the LGBT? BTI community or, you know, how do rainbow families continue to access um, uh, their, whether they do it via surrogacy or whether they do it by, um, you know, other arrangements, um, you know, restrictions on borders are placing big barriers for people who are trying to create rainbow families as well. So, you know, what does that mean and how can we support that? So, you know, 
the big thing that I'd say around the, the for or against that's happening in Victoria at the moment is is recognise that just because somebody doesn't 100% agree with you on either side of, of the equation um, doesn't mean that um, they're an inherently bad person. And, and we all need a lot of bit of, uh, a bit of reassurance at this time. You know, it's been a tough six or seven months. Um, so I think nuance, perspective uh, and accepting the fact that we don't need to be um, so polarised is, is probably my thoughts going forward. Speaking of perspective, you must be alarmed at some of the narratives that are creeping into the media around the value of human life, especially elderly people, and that being used uh, to back up neoliberal arguments to open the economy, even though that poses huge health risks. Look, it's a very complex space, and um, you know the one the one group that I think we need to hear a little bit more of is is you know what is the ethical view of what we're doing and 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 is it right and is it appropriate in in any sense of the imagination so you know it, it's such a challenging area health science and health economics and and I just think it would be good to to just sort of um, be a bit more um, thought through in our discussions as opposed to so provocative and and polarizing and I think that's what we'll need as we look forward. Speaking of polarising issues, we were chatting with Brent Allen Kidd before who was talking about Australia's terrible uh, human rights record around immigration and uh, the need for a rainbow train in Australia to support people in countries like Chechnya who are facing persecution because they're LGBTIQ. Uh, He asked me to ask you about that. What are your thoughts on something like that being established in Australia? Look, I think there's two parts to that question. The first thing is I know um, when I was National Chair of Rainbow Labor, we did a lot of work with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and working with organisations like UN Free and Equal, which is the United Nations group responsible for LGBTIQ plus rights globally. And so I know there had been previously quite a bit of investment in sort of what does that look like? How does Australia engage? What are the opportunities to get involved? A lot of that has dropped off with a conservative government now federally. So, you know, I think one part of it is what is Australia's response. But the second challenge to this is how we actually support and fund these people in their countries to actually achieve legal change or safety or the protections that they need in a number of places. And, and you know, we mentioned Give Out Day earlier. Give Out Day has an international project uh, this year supporting our sister organisation in the UK, and they fund organisations like Iraq Queer and the Arab Foundation for Freedoms and Equality and, and Pink Armenia and, you know, UHAI Ishir, which is an organisation that works in Eastern Africa. You know, there's two parts of this equation, I think, Recognising the work that organisations like Rainbow Railroads do is critical and how we respond as a country is one part of the equation. But the second part of the equation is how do we actually change the legal environment in the countries that these people are coming from such that they don't have to flee? And that's really critical to support organisations that are working in those countries as well. Of course, you've recently talked about your upcoming tree change to Macedon. Uh, What can you tell us about that? That's it. I've been in and out of Melbourne most of the time since I've left uni. So with the exception of a couple of years in in Sydney and overseas, Melbourne's been home for a very long time. I am packing up very soon in a couple of weeks' time and and making a move up to the Macedon Ranges. So I'm looking forward to having a bit more space and a bit of yard and and potentially get a second uh, dog and, and have a veggie garden. And what does all this mean for your political career? Will we see you putting your hand up for uh, Northern Victoria in the Upper House? Can we expect you to be contesting the next state election for the Upper House? No, look, I I had said that I'm um, definitely taking the next election off. I think uh, I've given it a good couple of goes locally in Pran and obviously in the South East Metro seat. 
but there's some really great people who are getting involved locally in and around the area that I've brought home for sort of give or take the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, but I'm going to do a few other projects with my life for a little while. You know, I think there's some real opportunities for some, some new LGBTI people to stand and run for state parliament. Victoria still has the least representation, the least number of LGBTIQ uh, members of parliament in real numbers and percentage of any jurisdiction in Australia, and we really need to change that. So, you know, it's in, in everyone's best interest to have diversity of representation in parliament, and, and I'd really encourage people to stand um, for the next state election. You know, pre-selections will open in about a year for the major political parties for the next state election. So it's a good time for community leaders and civic activists and, and political activists to consider whether they'd be interested in joining um, and getting involved politically going forward. But I'll, I'll be having a bit of a break. Um, but politics and equality are still big passions of mine, but I'll always be available to help any others. Are you mentoring any prospective LGBTIQ candidates for local government and also for, for state and federal politics? Not necessarily mentoring, although I do have quite a few phone calls with a, a number of uh, LGBTIQ candidates across the field and uh, donated a little bit of money, which I'm, I've been in a position to do. So, you know, it's nice to be able to give 50 or $100 to a few campaigns really um, mean something for me. A big one locally is uh, I was very fortunate. I had a, a really great volunteer who helped out on my campaigns in Pran for the last uh, a couple of elections, Patrick Stevenson, and he's running for Stonington Council in South Ward. Um, and it's really good seeing a young LGBTI activist running for a local council seat uh, in an area that I ran for. So you're ruling out running for the upper house at the upcoming state election. That's that's crossed out. That's off your list. Never rule anything in or out, but uh, it's not on my timetable at the moment. I'm very lucky in the Macedon Rangers to have a really great local state MP in Marianne Thomas. She's done amazing work in that community and um, and if I'm out there, I'll definitely be volunteering on her campaign. Neil Ferrer, always great to talk to you on 3CR. Thanks so much for joining me today. No problems. Thanks, James. 
disgusting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now, but she might be quite left. She might just be a spiritual hippie type. But there's this broad appeal to things like Save the Children and Great Awakenings. There's almost a hippie-like quality to it, particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q. And it's getting people in there. But Q is not just a conspiracy theory, is it? It is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months. So your auntie's going to be talking about Make Australia Great Again in six months if she isn't right now. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
And that was Shirley Lewis with Arms and Extremely Dangerous. We also heard from Paddy Smith with Paths Across. Taking us out is The Cure with Lullaby. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
care for a friend or someone in your family with disability, a medical condition, or who is elderly, Carer Gateway can help you get free support. Carer Gateway has lots of services to help carers. There's counselling, financial and peer support, and online courses that you can do at your own pace. They also have respite services to help you look after the person you care for while you take a break. Call Carer Gateway on 1-800-422-737 or visit the website carergateway.gov.au. A 3CR supporter.